Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday the 8th of September. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, we chat with the CEO of Sisterworks, Ifrin Fittick, about their spectacular cultural festival happening on the weekend, and Nat discovers the wonderful world of lumens. Fee Wright reviews Empress of the Nile by Lynn Olsen. We deep dive into celebrities in our dreams. And for Tech Talk, Vanessa Toholka breaks down how Suzanne Vega became the mother of MP3s. Reluctantly prolific novelist Chris Wormsley joins us upon publication of his new thriller in the suburbs, Ordinary Gods and Monsters. But we start the week with Michael Harden's essential dinner party do's and don'ts. Triple R. Michael Arden's here to wet our appetites. Morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Now, I'm pretty intrigued about what you want to bring up as we as people flex their socialising muscles at home. Uh, where are we going today? Uh, we're talking about. I've just decided to talk about dinner parties yes. um, because it was sort of like it's one of those things that sort of it's come up a couple. I went to a dinner party the other night and I thought I haven't been to one of these for a while. There's a uh, there's a new book out by um, Martin Ben and Vicky Wilde who are sort of luminaries from the in the food scene and call it all about dinner parties. And um, I was just kind of you know I was thinking it is sort of the new thing, particularly and also I think at a time when there's sort of a bit of an economic crisis and um, you know kind of with real estate and that sort of stuff, people are kind of thinking of other ways to socialise. And I think also with the thing with um, restaurants at the moment with timings, like with, in busy restaurants where there's time, like, you know, they'll give you two hours to eat, whereas like a dinner party gives you time to flex and, you know, you're able to spend a bit of time and hang out and have a, have the, the, the meal fold out for itself. So, um, but I think it's sort of like... It's Overstays, the code word. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think that with... Um, with dinner parties, it's sort of like I think that the name itself is a bit frightening to people still. It sort of feels like that there's a lot of formality and a lot mm. of which, which kind of that's where it started. So it was sort of like it was a, a very much part of dinner parties were very much a sort of a post-World War II thing when there was this burgeoning middle class and it was a way of for people and people to show wealth and it was also kind of like a networking opportunity like you would have your boss over for dinner and, you know, have this quite formal thing. And you sort of look at the architecture of houses and stuff even and people had dining rooms, mm. so you know, which were often used only for formal occasions. Like you would, you know, you'd, you'd sit in the kitchen normally, and then you'd have the dining room that was the more formal thing. So it was kind of so there was all these rules and regulations, and people thought they had to dress up and they had to be all these sort of things. But I think in Australia, with the kind of like multicultural stuff that we're, multiculturalism that we have in Australia, and kind of like our, our obsession with food, that sort of people coming from from you know european like southern european and asian middle eastern all of the, the way that people eat there are share is sharing situations where people everything is put into the middle of the in the middle of the table and people can do what they need to do there so it's um so it's sort of given taken some of the um stress 
out of doing it. It's sort of like this sharing way of doing it. Um, and uh, I think it's sort of like it's also a way that you can get around sort of dietary requirements and annoying things like, you know, oh, there's a vegan at the table, you know, all those sort of things. So you just have enough dishes on the thing, on the table, and that everybody can take whatever they want. You don't want to eat a lot. You want to eat a lot. You don't want to eat meat. You do want to eat meat, you know, those sort of things. So it's sort of really taken that sort of like hierarchical structure that, that was in with the dinner party. And um, I was listening to um, – there there's a TED talk by a US um, psychologist called Jerome Burt and it's called How a Dinner Party Can Save Your Life. Oh, okay. And um, talking about the sort of like the idea of the connection, communication, the talking and everything because it's like – it's one of those things that like you would – a lot of people don't care about when they go to a restaurant about looking at their phone or, you know, doing things on their phone. But if you're in somebody else's house and they're cooking dinner for you, mm. the level of rudeness of looking at your looking at screens or devices the whole time when you're amongst friends is going to be it's going to be called out. So it's sort of like it's much more about sort of being together, connection, holding things together, sort of like, you know, being with your friends, you know, sometimes meeting new people, bringing some new people into the fold or old old friends, that sort it's of stuff. It's inherently so. more intimate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it's really good. So I'm all for it. And it's kind of like, a, particularly at this time where, you know, restaurants are expensive. I'm not saying don't go to restaurants, but mm. it's sort of like a lot of people can't afford to go to restaurants. So mm. this is a good way mm. to do it. So um, there are some rules, I think, uh. that, are, that are good to sort of like make a successful dinner party. I think you kind of, um, you have to look at numbers, number one. Like it's sort of like I kind of my um, go-to would be six, maybe eight. Um, but six tends to be in terms of structure of conversation and that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's sort of like notes. there's only six people can have a conversation together yeah. at the time, you know. So like as soon as you've got eight, you've got a couple of people breaking off down one end of oh, the table. Oh, that's right. And, yeah, you know, that yeah your mate stuff. Dunbar, the, so the psychologist, capped at it. Well, it was four, but yes, mm. uh, six you can adults can hold it together. For yeah, six. yeah, and you've got yeah, exactly, and you've with got wine too. Yeah, yeah with wine yeah. will help. Yeah, exactly, and it's kind of like you look at the configuration of a six table, whether it's a round or a, or a rectangular table, and it's like everybody can see and speak to each other really easily. So I think that that's like you know go go for it if you if you want more, that's fine, fun mm-hmm. too. But it just becomes a different. Thing. Yeah. Mm. Bite off more than you can chew. Go against his advice. Yeah, Go exactly. For Feel free to you. have a terrible night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so that's one do. Yeah, um, I... I reckon, and this is a few people that talk about dinner parties, always start with a cocktail. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, it's just kind of like it feels special. It's sort of get everybody's drinking the same thing. If people aren't drinking alcohol, then make sure you have a bit of a fancy soda or something so they can feel part mm. of the mix as well. Kind but with water. the cocktails, make sure that you do something that you can pre-make. Like there's a lot of stuff because you just want to take all the stress out of this. So, like, you know, something like a Negroni or a Martini, you make it up beforehand and then you chuck it in the freezer Yep. And then so when people arrive, you've just got you've got this ready to go. You can give them a cocktail. They can have it in their hand within, you know, a couple of minutes, you know. Yeah, I like that. It's a call to action. People are maybe a little bit, like, anxious arriving. Absolutely. They don't want to be rude. Nerves. You don't want to ask. You wouldn't, you'd never request a cocktail, but if it's offered to you, everyone Absolutely. gets excited. Absolutely. Like, I think it's, a, it's sort of like an act of generosity. You yeah. Know? It's sort of like, and then, you know, hopefully there'll be more than one. But um, <laughs> but the, uh, the other thing about, like, on the booze front, um, if, you're the, if you're holding the, the, the dinner party, um, get a large sort of tub or something for the booze. Mm. 
because you don't want to be playing fridge Jenga with people's bottles because you've probably got food in the fridge waiting mm. to be cooked or sort of sitting there ready to go. And you don't want to be like people trying to shove bottles of wine in there and everything. So it's really just to sort of like the, the ease is to sort of like have like, you know, the, the tub of ice somewhere that people can, they come in, most people bring some wine or whatever they want to drink. They can just shove it in there and then you don't have to worry And they can about get their own. And people mm. maybe feel re- rude opening another person's fridge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I, at the dinner party that I was there the other day, I still think I stood in front of the fridge going, but my wine needs to be in the fridge. You know, like, you know, not a lot of people are so uptight about these things as I am. But, uh, yeah, so, but I kind of I love the idea of just that and sort of like, and then you've got you've got already got other stuff in there. So again, it's sort of this feeling of generosity. You know, it's kind of like, welcome to my home, put your stuff there and everything. Um, I think um, on the music front, it's always good to have, you know, make sure you've got a playlist. And if you're going down, if you're, going down the vinyl thing, mm-hmm. you don't have time. If you're, you're holding dinner party, you don't have time to be flipping records the whole time. So make sure that there's somebody there that you can trust as a DJ and just designate them when mm. they come in so that they're the ones that are... And, you know, people... And I really like people going through your record collection because they'll pull things out that you don't have not noticed oh, yeah. for a mm. while or something. And so you've got... You, you, it's sort of fresh for you mm. as well. So. And maybe try and remember what the last track on each side is. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, so you can, exactly. You're there to flip before yeah. the scratching. Yes, yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like just it's just kind of thinking ahead. Like and, you know, and again, um, on the cooking front, it's like, you know, you do cook things that you know or, the, you know, recipes that you can trust and that sort of stuff. But also remember that a lot of stuff that's good for groups is better the second day. You know how leftovers taste mm. better the second day? So cook like, like the ragu or the braise or the vegetable casserole or whatever you do and cook it the day before. And let it sit in the fridge, and then when people arrive, you're just there. You're just heating things up, uh, so it's not. You don't have a sink full of dishes. You don't have all like you so say. The main courses and stuff on the table are reheated, and they're actually going to taste better than if they've just come off the stove. That's outstanding. So um, you know that sort of thing. It's like it's all just prepare stuff beforehand. If you want to do starters, mm-hmm. you know, and if you if you you know you're really into cooking and you want to do that sort of thing, of course. But it's like you know you can also like you know there's so much so many so much beautiful tinned fish around at the mm. moment and, you know, sort of really good nuts and sort of like, you know, things like olives and, you know, bread and stuff like that. You don't have to get too fancy with your starters. It's sort of like you just put a few sort of snacks on the table and then cover the table with food. Daniel that. yesterday declared himself the king of charcuterie mm. as someone who said he doesn't like to cook for people but so that he'll just, just settle on a, on a platter. So yeah. I feel like that's this is your time to shine. Well, I, some tinned fish and can olives. you overdo it with the starters? Like, yeah. And yeah, don't get too overexcited. Don't fill up it's on sort bread, of like, mm. my mum yeah. always says. <laughs> it sounds like it's a charcuterie dinner party, mm. what he's yeah, saying. Okay. It's mm. the that's, main event. Yeah. And for the next course, we have prosciutto. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm going to host a leftover platter dinner party. Yeah. yeah. but it's the same at the other end of the meal too like you know if you don't want to do some dessert that you're kind of panicked about you know it's sort of like the whole thing used to be you know the the souffle or the croquembouche that was sort of like if you looked at it sideways it'd like fall over Mm. and the whole thing would be a disaster but it's like chocolate Yes, you know, absolutely. Fruit, ice cream. Cheese, ice cream. Yeah. Like, you know, go to go to gelato and just sort of like, you know, get three different sorts of gelato, you know, and it's kind of it's No great. one's ever disappointed with and there's so much good ice cream to buy. No absolutely. one's ever disappointed with that rather than spending hours baking something elaborate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a kid of the eighties, the best thing when my parents had a dinner party was the leftover Terry's orange on the table afterwards. So <laughs> yeah, I just I used to get love it. Get one that. of them. No yeah. 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 Uh, do people need to know what they're in for? Do you for would announce each dish in a 
well in advance or it's a surprise? No, I reckon it's a surprise. And then it's sort of like, and I like the kind of like, you know, having people sitting around and then you start dropping food on the table. Love that. It's kind of like it's the reveal and stuff. And it's sort of like... With the main course, this is what I think. It's sort of like the like. Don't try to multi courses and stuff like that. It's all about that main di- main course, and so a generosity on the table is a good thing mm. as well. Sort of make sure that it that it's covered and sort of so people. So there's a there's a beautiful kind of energy about people passing dishes to each other across the table and helping each other and everything. The other thing um, it, that vitally is like don't cook pasta. Uh. Um, because it's like it's really, really difficult to cook pasta for six people at one time. You'll end up with, if you've got fresh pasta that you've bought or made or something, it'll all get glugged together in a pot. You know, really sort of like with pasta, it's best to cook it like one at a time. And if you've got six people, it's sort of like that's a lot of different pans and that sort of stuff. So pasta is not a good choice for... Um... <laughs> I, I literally spoke about cooking pasta for four people yesterday, but that's all right. It wasn't a dinner party. It was a casual dinner. Yeah, yeah. But, it is, <laughs> no but it is like four is sort of about as much as you can push it. Yes. But if you've got six serves of pasta in a pot, yeah. it doesn't matter how big the pot is, it's going to end up clogged and kind yes. of a bit sticky was... and gooey. And how do you... Yeah. So what, 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 are your, what are your rules for people bringing things? Bringing things, I or think... if you're hosting, is it yeah, all Yeah, like I think more... I think it's more a situation of asking. Mm. You know, you sort of like... I always ask if there's something, you know, because you know, like you say, you know, do you want me to like... You just know that you're going to bring some wine. Yeah, well, I yeah, do. yeah, yeah. I don't go anywhere without wine. Mm. <laughs> wine In fact, right good now, yeah. now. <laughs> You've got to keep flasking. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely drop you brought yeah. this one. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of like it's nice to be – if they say bring some cheese or bring some bread or, you know, do your – you know, I love that salad that you do okay. or, yeah, you know, yeah, something yeah. like that. So I, I always sort of check ahead but it's sort of like – You'd want people to have a reputation for the cheese or the salad. Yes. You don't yeah. want to outsource something yeah, as yeah. significant as that. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So. I know we've jam-packed a lot. Well, you have, not, <laughs> not us, but lighting as well, candles. Absolutely. Candles or every, in every, yeah, every way. It's sort Lamps. of like, you know, sort of like the lighting mm. is like, you know, you don't want to be like, no feel like, like you're, you're sitting in an interrogation room. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So. And just finally, what time, does it matter what part of the year we're talking or is there an optimal time that you would Look, like I, to have I love arrive? a winter dinner party because there's something, you know, that sort of that whole cosy thing of being in somebody else's house yeah. and eating and sort of it's getting It's got together an Agatha Christie, someone's going to yeah. get murdered vibe. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't normally associate murder with dinner parties. No, but, yeah, exactly. uh, you know. <laughs> uh, Michael and fascinating and brilliant and we're all on notice for our dinner party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'll wait for the invite. <laughs> Melbourne's own. Triple R. Since 2013, Sisterworks has helped thousands of migrant, refugee and asylum seeker women from over 100 countries become economically empowered through a range of programs, entrepreneurship and employment opportunities. Now, to celebrate turning 10, the not-for-profit, is it staging the Sisterworks Spectacular Cultural Festival this Saturday at Abbotsford Convent? And to tell us about the rise of the organisation and the events and activities plan, we're joined by CEO of Sisterworks, Ifran Fittick. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Can you take us back to the start of SisterWorks and its founding? Yes, of course. It started off uh, by nine women who met at an English class, um, all refugee, and uh, they decided, well, we've got to do do something if we want to change our lives in each new country. And they started to pull their money together, uh, creating the products that they know how to make, and then started uh, going into weekend markets here in Melbourne. 
Um, and from there on, there are more and more sisters joining, and then that's it. You know, SisterWorks uh, was born in May 2013. What sort of products were there at the start? Uh, so they are all handmade by the sisters, and they are culturally infused um, products, and it can be jewellery, uh, item articles of clothing, and some weaving uh, products, etc. And then what happened? <laughs> Um, and then we started uh, growing uh, from there. Uh, we have a permanent, uh, so from the market existence, we started uh, having a small shop in Swan Street. So there was our first um, uh, like brick and mortar, so, so to speak. Um, and that's that's how we then be able to support more and more sisters um, coming and joining the initiatives. Um, and then from there on, we then move again, getting uh, bigger because the space is just not enough for us. And then we started uh, also uh, what we call uh, or what also known as work integrated social enterprise, where we started uh, making our own products. Um, and then sisters who are not making or not creative, not everybody knows how to, you know, or wants, wants to sew or make jewelries, they then come and work uh, for us. So we're at the moment um, in our main hub. Uh, or headquarters in Abbotsford in our production hub. We have about 40, 50 sisters in one given point in time that we hire as our uh, employees in making uh, the products. Uh, we call them SisterWorks label products. Um, as well as now, we also have uh, customers who come uh, to us and ask us to make products for them or custom-made products for them or upcycle products for them. Um, you know, a few examples would be uh, we upcycle the uh, Melbourne event banners or the City of Melbourne event banners. Um, this has been uh, on for about four years now. And then the City of Melbourne then uh, sell them through the information centre uh, throughout the city. They have a little uh, town hall and information centre throughout the CBD. So that's where they then sell what, the products. What do you do with the banners? Hmm. So we turn them into a tote bag. Oh, cool. Nice. Yes. Are yes. they vinyl? So they are uh, no, they're the uh, fabric uh, polyester uh, banner. So they're pretty soft, very colourful. They come from you know examples of events that we uh, up uh, the Willy Wonka. There was about uh, a big uh, Willy Wonka about three years ago. The uh, um, the Melbourne Writers Festival, um, the um, Australia Open. Yeah, so right. those those you know quite a big. Um, I've never thought big what happens to those banners. They're so interesting. Yeah, mm. so good that they're not just going in the bin. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, and we do we do a lot of that too. We have we also work with um, other companies uh, where we got the banners and we turned them into something else. So those are the kind of initiatives and you know sustainability. Well, we, we try to make a difference, mm. a little a little difference. I to, also um, totally miss Willy Wonka coming to town as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, and what sort of barriers are there in the Australian system that SisterWorks helps people navigate? Yeah, I think. When you first arrive in, in a country where everything is so unfamiliar for you, everything is, in a way, barrier. Um, when they first arrive, even coming to SisterWorks, how do you get to SisterWorks? We almost, you know, you tell them, you got, a, you got on the train and then look for Miranda Line and you stop at Victoria Park and then you walk for about 400 metres. So, you know, mobility is a big thing. Um, when you first got here, you don't have your driver's license. You don't necessarily have the means to get a car. So mobility is usually the big thing. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, English is also... Uh, or a lot of them would say that oh, the biggest challenge they have is their language. But actually, you know, not really. Sometimes as humans, we can make, make do with your sign language, etc. But they actually uh, pick up... When, when they are in the immersive, as it 
uh, environment, they pick it up really, really quickly. So I would say mobility, to a degree, the the language. And I think it's just the how Australia operates. The concept around superannuations is very foreign to them. Tax file number is also, you know, where do I get the tax file number? Where do you even start? Like, you know, I have a, I have a teenagers who already started working and then, you know, well, mom, how do I get tax file number? How do I have, uh, how do I set up super? I mean, she's, you know, she's yeah. grew up here. And also just to interject briefly, as people are shunted online, it would become very difficult navigating ah, yeah. websites. Yes, yes, no, definitely. Yes, I mean, we know that setting up our MyGov. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we are there. We, we're there to support them. Um, sometimes what we what other people think, oh, you know, why do you even bother doing it? Because, you know, you're just helping them, sitting next to them um, on a computer and then navigate through the website process. Like you said, well, that's exactly the need or the help that, that they need from us. Yeah, it gets but, totally overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now what's happening Saturday after – is it a celebration? Yes, it is. So uh, 10 years anniversary, we thought, what do we do to celebrate this and what's better to have than putting all this uh, cultural hash or mishmash, whatever you call it, together into one day of celebration? Um, in the 10 years of Sisterworks Operational, we have uh, at the moment my last tally. I think the website says 105, but actually the last tally is 107 different nationalities that came through Sisterworks door. Uh, if you're looking for anyone speaking some languages, then surely there will be somebody at Sisterworks. They'll be able to speak the language. So we thought, you know, why not put them um, all together in one day? There will be um, performances. There will be um, interactive um you know, dance, in music, um, food, uh, products that sisters make and um, there's uh, uh, kids' activities and, it, um, and it's all free. And a lot of the businesses who are going to be there are all the sisters' uh, businesses, the, those that we have supported through their entrepreneur journey and those that gone through the program. And once someone has gone through Sister Works, do they stick around to help those come behind them? Um, As some of them, we we don't we don't kick them out. <laughs> yes, we, so we uh, those that uh, would like to stay with us and still be part of us, then we welcome them. Um, but some who have you know successfully set up uh, their businesses or place into employment because our programs also the vocational program that we have we place them through employment that they usually you know they're typically busy mm. which is what we want uh, yeah. so they Monday to Friday busy so then it basically free up the spot for the new sisters to come in and we can we can support more and more um, through the door yeah because that's how you um, were. Uh, came involved, wasn't it, by volunteering and now you're CEO? Yes, yes, six years ago that was. Uh, times, uh, you know, flies. Yes, that was, uh, that's right. I was um, having a, a sabbatical leave waiting for my youngest daughter to return to school um, and I got introduced to SisterWorks. My first role at SisterWorks is to volunteer as a digital literacy teacher, mm-hmm. touching into, you know, the computer thing that we just discussed. Um, and then uh, my past, in my past life before SisterWorks, um, I was um, management and IT consultant. So I was uh, into process, uh, system, et cetera, et cetera. So I then, from there on, I supported SisterWorks in implementing the system, inventory management system, barcoding system. That was throughout uh, during my uh, volunteering time. 
Um, and then once you're in, you believe in the mission, you see the change that the sisters experience, you know, the, the life that they're touched by, sister works, the staff and the volunteers. And I thought, okay, this is this is it. This is it for me. So, yeah, six years down, six years down the track, I am still here. Amazing. Incredible. Power uh, of volunteering, hey? We've had a listener from Metro Trains wanting to share some information with sister work, so we'll pass on your details there as well. It's, yes. Uh, so Saturday, cultural dance, music performances, food stalls, ethically made products, crafts. I'd imagine there'll be kids' activities as well. Yes, there's kids' activities, Mexican um, mask or face uh, painting as well. So a uh, couple of uh, couple of kids' activities. And, and, and also, um, how should I... How should I describe it? Uh, interactive, immersive uh, kids uh, dance. So there's going to be a gamelan uh, group who will be teaching um, the traditional dances to to the kids that that are there. So that's uh, you know give them a, a, a feel or a touch of uh, of that cultural immersiveness. Brilliant. Well, it's all kicking off Saturday, 9th of September, 9am till 4pm at Sacred Heart Courtyard and Oratory, the Abbotsford Convent. The entry is free. Sister Works, I imagine, is being self sufficient. You've put it on all on yourself? Uh, not really. We have about 60 volunteers. Oh, no, oh, okay. I mean, yes. But, uh, okay, so is there a website you want to direct us to for more information? Uh, we have a Facebook uh, event page. Okay. Uh, there's some information there and every day we post um, a feature of the sisters who will be there, the food truck, which is also run by our sisters. So she was one of the uh, small business sisters or entrepreneur sisters who wanted to set up a food truck, and she did. So cool. it'll be a, a, a taco food truck. She's from Mexico. Um, and uh, so we, we update that uh, Facebook page every day with the uh, the feature of the sisters, the performers that's going to be there. So, yes, uh, stay tuned. Not that we have more posting because we have another two or three days only to go, <laughs> but uh, you will see them in action Beautiful. this weekend. Sister Work Spectacular Cultural Festival this Saturday, Oatsford Confit. Uh, Convent Ifrin Fiddick, CEO of Sisterworks. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. A few days ago, straight after the show, I made the decision to go to a certain flat pack flat pack furniture store mm. to pick up some items for my... An FFS, as they're called. What did you say? An FFS. It was that? Flat pack for... It's not called that. I'm trying to start a thing. Oh, and it... FPFS. <laughs> FPFS. I can't even say it at this time of the day. We needs work. Let's yeah, we're, workshop we're, should it. Done that. I'm Ikea. Take this, <laughs> take this offline. Ikea. There we go. Um, I went there after work and I was tray fatty gay. I was very tired. As soon as I walked in, I knew I had made a mistake. The problem with the store is that I knew where I wanted to go. I wanted the section where you can buy all just the little bits and bobs for the kitchen, the pots, the cutlery, just the, the storage towels. stuff, mm. the cheap, easy stuff. Because bits and bobs, is that next to the Nicks and the Knacks? Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the <laughs> <laughs> but you have to go. I mean, I'm sure maybe there is a way to get there. Without going through the showroom? There is. Is there? Well, mm. I couldn't figure it out. It feels very complicated. It feels, I felt like I was in like a video game and you have to go through the levels to get to the cheapest section, uh. which is the last one. So I was like, okay, you're going through the showroom, follow the arrows, put your head down, like let's just get in and out. Um, so I think I went I went pretty well. Um, I was like power walk, um, 
I tried to take a few kind of shortcuts. Because they have the little signs where they say shortcut through here, cut through the kitchen and you get to the yeah, study. I tried and I ended mm. up in the kids section. Oh, no. I know. I felt like it, I think, and a lot of people must feel like it, felt like I was in the labyrinth the movie, but instead of like little kind of goblins and worms like slipping the pavers upside down, changing the arrows, it's just lovely throw rugs and cushions that are distracting you. No, come this way. No. And did you buy anything? Did you did you think, well, actually, now that I'm here, I do need a cot. I did buy a few throw rugs because <laughs> they can fix everything when you are decorating on a dime. I bought a second-hand couch, pretty good, but there is a few stains on, on the arms. So there was a few impulse throw rug purchases. <laughs> yeah. You can put it on everything. It fixes everything, even leaks, just plugging <laughs> up holes with throw rugs. I was going to save it to the end. Look, I did pretty well, but I did also purchase something I have many, many, many of, which was a lamp. I bought a new um. lamp. Yeah, which I kind of secretly thought it wasn't a complete impulse purchase. I had eyed this lamp off for a while and I was there. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to grab it on my way to the kitchen Nixon Nobsy Bobsy section. The Nixon Nobsy Bobsy section. Nobsy Bobsy kitchen section. I I have mon an excess of vintage lamps that keep multiplying. Mm. That started out as a bit of a joke. So impulse purchase is one lamp Mm. and... I talked about it so much, people continued to give me lamps as a joke for birthdays. Ah, and always vintage lamps. Yeah, they're always incredibly distinct and the issue that I had with the first lamp I bought was that it was an incredibly odd height. So it kind of wasn't tall enough to be a standalone lamp and it was too tall to be a bedside lamp. And it consumed my life for like a year and my friends heard a lot about it mm. and it was right before like a milestone birthday. So I received a lot of lamps. Anyway, I bought just a plain lamp, mm. um, which has also kind of introduced me to the importance of, now I'm going off piste here, but I plugged it in just last night mm. and I had to buy a light globe for it. And because it's incredibly plain lamp, I really noticed the brightness of the globe because mm. I'm used to these like vintage lamps with their thick canvas and like patterns to diffuse the brightness to mute it. of the glow, mm. exactly, regardless of the lumens. Mm, the lumens. And so I experienced last night for the first time the importance of paying attention to the lumens in the globe that you buy. When you buy a globe on the box, does it say yes. 20 lumens? Does whatever it is. I think they op- so not watts. That's different to watts. It's different to watts. Well, what are the quantities of lumens that are optimal? Or how do they come? Do um, they come in twenties? No, I think they come in higher. I'm pretty sure the lumens that I bought, or the, I bought like 1150 lumens, like 1000 and something lumens. Oh, 20 lumens is quite dim. It was yeah. it's very dim. Barely you would you'd need a torch if, you, I, if no. you're dealing in low lumens like that. But I've heard people talking about like curating the perfect space. Yes, that you should have consistent lumens. It's all about. A friend of mine, yeah. A friend of mine's name is Dimmy, and he is a lighting designer. Which wow, he'd know about lumens. Dimmy switch. Anyway, he always nominative says, determinism. Is that it? Oh, when you end up it, doing it's, what you're called, yeah, maybe I'll just call him that now. Or nommy. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's all about um, multiple sources of multiple sources of light. Okay, 
rather than one, like one big. And when I go into people's – and I'm all – yeah, I'm the same. I'm all about lamps and candles. Yes. When I go into people's houses and they have the, the big down lights on, mm. it feels like I'm being interrogated. It does. It's And I leave. It's intense <laughs> and it can be – it's like we've got down lights here in the studio. I mean – it's just it does it doesn't feel very calming or no I don't relaxing f- that's right it's not Higgit that the thing you know that was very popular a few years ago Higgit 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 well it's H Y G G E which people were calling Higgy but I think in I think it's a Danish term and I don't think you say Higgy so I am saying neither of the correct pronunciations of it but it was that thing about low light and warm bringing warmth to a space throw rugs yeah which is what you're going for it's what i'm going for but yeah i've got too many lumens i've thrown off the balance with so in one corner of the living room there is the vintage lamp and that is kind of got a really soft diffused warm light and then i've just got this circular kind of standard lamp Mm -hmm. and it's just Burst like just so bright and a different kind of whiter, sharper light. And yeah, it's intense. I feel like it's two dis- very distinct moods in a, a very small space. The so. text line is lighting up, and <laughs> someone, uh, Dean says 600 lumen light output is good. A, a 3000 Kelvin light color temperature is ideal for a bedside lamp. I mean, oh, that's gorgeous. And then someone says, You should be talking lux, not lumens. What's Lux? Lumens oh. is brightness, but Lux is brightness over an area. Okay. Well, this is definitely, yeah, I guess, because I'm looking for a bit of a kick in the light because it's the living room. I want to be able to read, read a recipe. I like that there's like a little kitchen over there in the corner. Mm. I don't like the lights. They are down lights. So if pos- I purchased this lamp so I could avoid the down lights. Yeah. Light. yeah so, well, thank you. Okay. What if you buy a lampshade? To do what your old vintage lamps do. Well, no, this does. It's got a glass in case over it and the mm. light's just cutting through in a different way. It's I'm dealing with a different kind of lamp. It's a different beast. Mm. 350 lumen in a warm white is a nice low light. <laughs> People are so nice on the text line. I'm they really want this. you to have a good space. Well, I'm almost certain. I could be wrong. I did mean to bring the box in to cross-reference it, but it was in the four figures. Okay, that's a lot. It was. It's a dangerous amount of lumens based off the suggestions coming through. Yeah, yeah, okay. I could blow up the whole apartment building, <laughs> get Evidently, the power off. I, I think I might be lux deficient as well. <laughs> I'm taking vitamins for it, though. <laughs> Triple R. Some desperately needed worldliness and class and erudition. Morning, Fee. Gosh, what a task. <laughs> yeah, lucky I, lucky I brought in a, a history book. <laughs> <laughs> it feels it feels apt for once. There we go. What is it? You called it a hefty boy? Yeah, I did call it a hefty <laughs> boy. Chunky boy. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it's got some chunk, um, a lot of references, cool. if you are interested in that sort of thing. Um, this is a book. We've been talking so much about education and community, uh, particularly in the Radiothon hubbub. I thought that this book, this this chunky, chunky little fella, um, would be a really good one to talk about. Um, and it's called Empress of the Nile. Um, it's written by Lynn Olson and it's out via Scribe. Now, I'm about to potentially butcher a whole lot of French and Egyptian 
words. Mm. I've only ever seen them written down. So you can educate me um, if I've said them wrong. So feel free to, to text if... Please don't. It's fine. We're all trying our best. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. I'm a volunteer, mate. There you go. Um, so this is the life story essentially of uh, Christiane de Roche Noble Corps. Um, and her lifelong pursuit of uh, saving the Abu Simbel temples in Egypt. And um, she also was uh, very, very key in um, bringing um, and creating the travelling exhibitions of Tutankhamun's work and bringing uh, – of, you know, the the antiquities and bringing them to the West and having them as like a travelling um, – experience for people to to visit and using that as a fundraiser to fund the works to protect and save these temples um and these works are that you would even if you haven't heard the name of abu simbel um you'd recognize them they're like these iconic built into the side of the of a mountain kinds of statues and temples um Ramesses I think that's how he says them Ramesses II um and so that you've got these huge humongous statues at the front standing guard of these temples and they will be they were at risk of um going underwater due to Egypt constructing the Aswan Dam. So Egypt, post-World War II, they're now trying to modernise. Um, they need a way to have all of the electricity that they need, so they need to get a dam. Unfortunately, the dam would completely destroy and um, sink essentially under the waters these um, incredible, incredible antiquities. And so there were a number of really passionate um, Egyptian archaeologists, um, Italian engineers, and also De Roche Noble Corps who saved the temples, right? And even though it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like when I saw that movie Sully about um, the guy who lands the plane on the Hudson. Hudson. Like even though I knew that the plane was going to land and everyone would be okay, I still had points where I was like, oh. <gasps> What's mm. going to happen now? And um, I knew the temples. Is the goose going to be okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, are the temples going to be fine? There were various points where I'm like, oh, no, you know, but this, they needed that money or whatever it might be. And so it became this huge global mission and it was kind of um, – and UNESCO um, were one of the key parts of saving it because uh, De Roche Noble Corps, she worked for UNESCO at this particular time. She went around fundraising to various governments um and so this book details her life and it is a cool life i picked this book up i hadn't heard of it i picked it up in a bookshop started flicking through it and i read the first chapter and in the first chapter she is arrested by the nazis on suspicion of being a um french spy um, and she's like, no, 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 I just work at the Louvre. What's wrong with you? Um, she was actually both. She was actually a French spy. And she worked during World War II to um, take or like hide all of the Louvre's treasures from the Nazis. Um, and she got out of being arrested by just swearing incessantly, I believe, being like, how dare you offend my honour kind of thing. Yeah, so she worked for the French <laughs> Resistance. Um, she like So she would work this day job in the Louvre um, making um, exhibitions of the huge 
um, Egyptology displays. And then by night she would like pack up stuff that they didn't want the Nazis to get and ship it out of the country to safety, sometimes even travelling with it um, because they couldn't trust people along the way. Um, and I started reading it and I was like, that is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and it just says, God, I've got to do more with my time. <laughs> yeah. So um, you think at the start, like. Wait, you read the first chapter in a bookshop? Yeah, and then I was like, I have to buy it. Well, you absolutely do, even <laughs> if you didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, it's not a library. Yeah. And oh. she was eating while she read yeah, the first yeah, chapter. Yeah, yeah, I got some grease marks on the <laughs> pages. Twisty and, dust yeah, all over the yeah, page. Yeah, I, I doggy-eared some pages <laughs> just to come back to it later. Um, but, yeah, so this woman was just incredibly fascinating and any time, you know, bureaucracy is a part of this book. It's kind of – it in it, discusses diplomacy it discusses um these relationships and how changing tensions impact things for example um de roche noble corps she gets a lot of access to egypt post-world war ii because there's a lot going on with the suez canal and the british and the the um, egyptian people government at this time are very annoyed at the British colonialist rule um, and annoyed is probably very much understating it. So the British get kicked out, but because she's French, she's she's still included. Um, Egyptology was very much, and archaeology is very much a boys' club, um, but because um, people wanted to annoy a lot of the men, they would hire her, which would give her more access. Um, so there were a lot of all of these other little things that were happening in the background. And one of the things that I loved about this book is that, um, you know, look, I was someone who's given a picture book of ancient Egypt as a kid and I just like never got over it. Um, and so I've gotten used to authors downplaying theft, racism, um, and the role of institutions in because they love the subject. And Lynn Olsen never does that. It's clear that she admires everyone involved, but she never shies away from discussing the cultural thefts of organisations and institutions like the Louvre or the British Museum. And she faces that, um, like, up front. Um, and many authors leave that out. Um, and she is very critical of those institutions simultaneously. And um, that's something that I haven't seen a lot of in these sorts of um, historical recountings of these events. But it's not just about – it is about um, um, De Roche Noble Court – Noble Corps. Sorry, I got told not to. Don't say the T at the end for the French. Um, this book does trace her life and saving the temples. But, um, for example, the Aswan Dam was being supported uh, financially by the Soviets. And then we're in the middle of the Cold War now. So then she goes to the West and the US and the US fund a lot of the saving of the temples because she manipulates these events that are happening in the broader world to her own benefit. And this is the point where Jackie Kennedy comes into the book. So over the halfway mark, Jackie Kennedy just just pops up, just as she does, um, and she doesn't know um, De Roche Noble Corps at all hasn't met her, but she is interested in saving the temples and starts working on JFK to donate money. And so these two women use, um, 
I guess, background politics to manipulate and influence the men into doing and saving these huge priceless relics, which is amazing. But anytime it becomes too much diplomacy, it's like, oh, we've been in boardrooms too long, bam, Cold War. Oh, we've been in boardrooms too long, bam, Nazis. Um, JFK dies. What's going to happen now? Like there are, it is so clear how the history and time of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even a bit of the 70s plays into the saving of mm. these things. And it's just a ripper. It's it's Indiana Jones, but chicks. Does Lynn Olsen, who's written, <laughs> what, nine history books, did, is it a... Is it a thrilling, page-turning, poppy kind of read? At points, yes. At points, definitely. Um, yes, it's very much that, particularly when Nazis are around and also when they're – but then also she – like De Rochnebukor disappears for large chunks of the book, which is interesting considering she's on the front cover – because, for example, she's once she said got all the funding for saving the temples, she's not an engineer, so she can't really be involved in that process. And it wasn't until I finished reading those chapters that I was like, oh, wait, where is she? You know, um, I didn't actually, like, she was so present and she was such a big force, but um, – Olsen doesn't actually just shy away from not including her necessarily. So there's large chunks of the book and there's really cool photos in it too of them like moving these giant statues and, you know, it's just like the head of Ramesses and, you know, it's on a crane and it's being like carted about and, yeah, it is is super cool. (laughs) History's cool, guys. (laughs) Can I ask, like, how was the reading experience overall? Were you consistently enthralled throughout it? Did you zip through it or is it a book that kind of... It did grow on me. I zipped through the start. Mm -hmm. In the bookshop. In the bookshop (laughs) Um, because the start is very attention grabby Um, and then in the later bits it was like it was also really strange that Jackie Kennedy wasn't mentioned on the back cover. She Mm. was a real, like, surprise guest feature spoiler thing. yeah yeah because she was in about she would she was really present there were like full chapters about her history and life in um and that she spent time in france she spent time in egypt um how she had all these state dinners with um various dignitaries from these countries to like influence the outcome of these events um so it was zippy at points, mm-hmm. but there were points where it wasn't zippy. But I am really grumpy that she should be – why don't we have a movie mm-hmm. about her? Like, And you could call it Indiana Jones but chicks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's going to be the next uh, pull point that uh, gets up. But, you know, we've got we've – got, She we've lived got, to 97, I, yeah, I just read. Yeah, and she was working the whole time. Wow. Yeah, she is awesome. She's so cool. Anyway, well, I don't know if that's a good review. It, uh, truly, and it's um, it's fun because you don't. I, I don't think you come in with much nonfiction. Yeah, got to mix it up. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's thrilling. Uh, I, gee, one chapter in a bookstore. I'll never get over that. Anymore. <laughs> uh, Lynn Olson is the New York Times bestselling author of Empress of the Nile, the daredevil archaeologist who saved Egypt's ancient temples from destruction, and that French who, who's the subject again? Uh, Christiane um, Desroches Noblecourt and Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a Heather Lockley special guest appearance. Fair right, thank you. Thank you. Woo! Ah, that's right, Triple R. 
personally, this is a bit of a big moment. I've been wanting to talk about dreams on the show for uh, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe months even. Mm. I'll flag as well. Now I know there's obviously a huge subset of people who are like dreams, couldn't think of talking about anything like worse Mm. like you just automatically switch off Mm. that's not really what I'm interested in although I am kind of versatile if someone does approach me and be like I had this dream what do you think it means I can probably stomach one of those conversations about once a month I can lean into Mm. one of them but this I want to talk about who we're dreaming about and are we telling them Mm. Um, but initially I wanted to talk about dreams because I was trying to form like a case or some kind of argument um, whatever you want to call it, that if you dreamt about a celebrity, that it counted as meeting them. You, this your, you think this? Yeah, I thought so. I, mm. Like I'm not entirely sure why. Like I feel like they just maybe like inhabit that kind of similar space of like it, dreams and celebrities kind of blur the line between, you know, reality. They're hard to pin down. It's fleeting. And it's like who cares? Someone tells you about it and you go, oh, yeah, tick, like that bit of conversation. I'm not sure why. I just got really hooked on people dreaming about celebrities. Mm. So I've been subtly kind of shopping this topic around to people to kind of gauge interest and I got very little. Mm. Apparently we're not dreaming about, like I spoke to several people and not that many people had like dreams about celebrities. So I don't think I have. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Maybe some cameos. I don't think anyone have had a leading role. Substantial. I did come across one person um, a couple of weeks back, Oliver Coleman, who's Friday Funny Bugger. I was like, what do you think about celebrities in dreams? Like, have you ever had, like, one? And he'd had quite a formative one. Mm. With his permission, I can say, he dreamt about Martina Hingis. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that she was on a beach in a red flowing dress. Okay, well, this is when it gets... No, well, that's as far as it's going. It was a formative and memorable (laughs) dream for him. And I was like, well, how do you feel about Martina Hingis now? I was like, yeah, I feel like a deep connection Mm. to that. Surely that counts as something. Doesn't. Yeah. No, she is none the wiser. Um, (laughs) But that really speaks to, you know, his taste. I'm not sure even what that's. So is the idea that a celebrity has penetrated your subconscious and therefore they're unaware of the intimacy, but it's happened? And so because it's. because these other actual celebrity meetings that happen in real life, you're saying it's so fleeting. Yeah. Like I said, oh, hi, let's get a selfie. What's the difference? Because they're going to forget that. So it's just as the same as meeting them in your dream. Is this the point you're making? Yeah, this connection, I guess like, okay, yeah. So I saw Willem Dafoe, sorry, (gasps) in Dubrovnik. Walk, just walked past him and he had his arm around like a woman. I remember I was really close, just saw him in like 2006. Mm -hmm. And I was like... That could have been a dream. Like it just happened. So I tell people ten uh, percent. Like sometimes I even question it. I'm like, did like, I see him? Did so, I? Yeah, did so I dream it? So it's like it's the mm. same. And if not, like sometimes our dreams are just like they hold more weight or the pat. You know. Mm. Look, it's I don't know. It's flawed. It's a messy thing, but it's just something that I got stuck on. Um, Someone on the text line did say years ago they dreamt they were uh, dating Kevin Rudd. Oh yeah. Is it the- so I don't know if it counts. But and I if Kevin Rudd would I'm Kevin and I'm here to help. <laughs> I mean, but what a confusing dream. What a confusing experience. Like, what does that do to your politics? How do you feel about him? I want to hear more. Would you tell him, like, if you met him, would you go, would you, you went along to a book signing or something, would you say, Kevin, 
Yeah. Don't pretend. Yeah. We've been here before. You were there. <laughs> How would you feel if someone someone told you you were in their dream? Yeah, well, I think that you're flattered, aren't you? Because you're like, I'm in their subconscious. I'm infiltrating their mind. Mm. <laughs> someone did mention in passing, they're like, oh, you were there in my dream. And I was like chuffed. For oh, sure. Okay. What about you? I think I always want more and then less information. Yeah. It's a slippery go, slope. Oh. Yeah, because I remember like I had a, a couple of students tell have, have told me before, oh, I miss you in my dream last night. Yeah. And I was like, we will leave this here. I would like to keep my teaching registration. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that – is that your potty mind, not theirs? It's not a potty mind necessarily, but it's more like oh. – It's inherently intimate. It doesn't matter what happened in the That's dream. That's right. Yes. You're, I'm, you're thinking at me outside Your of this classroom. Your eyes were closed and I was there. Yeah. Oh, wow. But people <laughs> pop up. Your eyes are closed and I'm all you see. <laughs> First thing you think of when you wake up in the morning. Um, yeah, so some rocking classes I must have been running. But, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I think I, I always want to know why. What was I doing? Was it good or bad? Has it changed your opinion of me? If someone pops up in your dream, would you just be like, that's in the vault, never comes out? or Unless it's someone I see and, like, it's a funny story. Yeah. But otherwise I'm like, that was weird. Because your dreams are just a jumble of, like, your, you know, what's in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. What you've seen, what you're thinking of. it. Sorry to all the dream believers out there. I don't know. But no. So it's just like obviously you've seen that person's photo or name mm-hmm. written down and you've thought of them in some way and then they pop up in your sleep. Yeah. Have you ever been mad at someone for what they've done in their dream? Oh, no. The, the, I remember my auntie going like, I feel annoyed at my neighbour and I'm not sure why. And then she's like, I remember. It's because she was in my dream. Mm. She drove past me and she was driving a Louis Vuitton purse. She tooted. But my auntie was running late for work and she didn't pick her up. And so she had, she had this, like, grudge feeling for, like, a couple of days and couldn't quite pinpoint it. And then she's like, aha, the Louis Vuitton purse she was driving. Mm, oh, okay. Yeah, so maybe. maybe. Is, oh, I also uh, had another friend who – and please text in if you've had a dream about I mean, about someone a met, met Prince Harry uh, who was – Prince Harry was having a garage sale in Chapel Street in Windsor. Oh, fantastic. They met him there. And Can't then... believe Prince Harry would get cancel approval for that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. He pulled some strings <laughs> in Windsor. It makes sense. Yeah. I hope he made a... Um, and Steve Irwin told... <laughs> Steve Irwin told this person they were going to die oh. <laughs> in their dream. Wow. So I wonder how they felt in 2006. Yeah, it can really linger with you. <laughs> A friend had a dream about um, her friend's partner and, like, she was friends with them and she just said it was all nothing untoward but, um, and she was just holding the partner's hand and she woke up feeling lovely and mm. feelings of love. But she sat on it. She's like, I have to come clean. I have to tell them. So she's like, look, you need to know I had this dream. It was lovely. The feeling has lingered but it meant nothing. <laughs> oh, they felt guilty. <laughs> yeah, they felt about it. Wow. I mean, my sister said that she she wakes up mad at her boyfriend all the time because of things he did in her in her dream. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Hard to come back from that. So then, do you you promise to make up for it that night? Don't worry. When we go to sleep tonight, I'll I'll be nice in your dream. I know. I, I just want to have some more dreams about celebrities. Actually, it was an uh, Inception style dream from a listener who dreamt that they were a figment of Delta Goodrum's imagination. <laughs> They need to write that down. <laughs> so they were in her dream, yeah. in their dream. They didn't exist. Wow. Oh. Imagine bumping into Delta and unpacking that one. <laughs> Someone had a dream they were co-hosting Breakfast. Hey! 
I mean, that is living the dream, isn't it? <laughs> How did they go, I wonder? Don't know. Excellent, I'm sure. Yeah. You're welcome to read the sport anytime. <laughs> Another was uh, dating Noel Fielding. Oh, oh, there you go. That's a fun dream. I'd love to have a dream where I could just date a celebrity. Maybe kiss a celebrity. Mm. Oh, all right. Yeah, well, why but, not? Yeah, Come go on. on. It's my nothing. dreams. I can do what I want. <laughs> there was a, another who dreamt their mum was a Satanist. Is that uh, right? <laughs> and like, oh, goodness, there's a bit of bad boy Bubby vibes out there. Uh, and the listener didn't speak to their mum for two weeks. <laughs> no, 14. But, uh, yeah, as for... Sensual dreams. Kevin Rudd, I can't. I don't think I'll ever shake that. Now I'm going to be dreaming about Kevin Rudd worshipping me with programmatic specificity. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Vanessa Tolker joins us to talk tech, both new and old morning, Vanessa. Good morning, Breakfasters. How are we? Good, thank you. Excellent. Well. And very excited to go on a journey. Well, you are really going to have to strap yourselves in for this one because I think I found the perfect marriage of tech and music for our, our audience here. Um, I thought we'd talk about the history of the MP3 today because I recently read something, a whole aspect of this story that I didn't know anything about. So let me take you and get you to set your minds back to 1981 for those of us who were there and uh, just use your imagination, everyone else. <laughs> and uh, Suzanne Vega is studying at Barnard College in New York City and she's going to Tom's restaurant regularly for coffee. Now, for those who are big Seinfeld fans like me, uh, you might realise that you know Tom's restaurant is that iconic little blue and red neon-signed cafe on a corner of Broadway and, and 112th in New York. And she describes it as a cheap, greasy place that people would later recognise from Seinfeld. Um, and that's, the, that's one of the places she has the idea for the song Tom's Diner in 1981. Uh, Tom's restaurant didn't have the same ring to it, so she takes the liberty of calling it Tom's Diner. And I had no idea, first of all, there was that connection. Uh, meanwhile, in 1982, there's a bloke named Karl-Heinz Brandenburg. They're a PhD student in Germany, and his thesis advisor wants to patent a way of transferring data over digital phone lines. So he's deep in the weeds. He's not writing, you know, whimsical songs. He's um, looking at early encoding processes, trying to filter signals into layers of sound, which could be... Um, saved or discarded depending on how significant they are to the message that you're trying to transfer. And it's really structured and inflexible. And then someone has a bit of a brainwave. Uh, someone thinks, well, we can exploit the limitations of human hearing. So if we can't hear it, let's just call that junk data and get rid of it in the signal. So anyway, that's a little epiphany they're having over in Germany. Uh, meanwhile, Tom's Diner gets released in 1987. So there's a bit of time between the writing and the getting the album together. Uh, the album Solitude Standing ends up selling 3 million copies around the world. Um, it does have a hit song called Luca, but the first track on the album is Tom's Diner, which for those who've heard it, it's uh, an a cappella vocal. It's a really warm kind of compelling thing and I'm sure that many people have heard it, um, but hopefully you'll go back and have a listen after this. Anyhow, so that, that album's going wild, but because of the nature of that a cappella vocal, it's also being sampled really widely. It's so easy to lift it and remix it and what have you. There's a group called DNA who put it against some sort of R&B background and it becomes one of the, the most played R&B songs and she gets a, a you know some sort of award for that. Anyway, that's all kicking off. That's 1987. 
1988, Karl-Heinz Brandenburg is still kicking around his university. Presumably the thesis is achieved. But now an international team is convened um, by the International Organisation for Standardisation, that ISO group that you hear, and it's asking for standards in audio and coding. That team's called the Moving Picture Experts Group, MPEG. And they're trying to bring videos to CD-ROMs, which are a massive you know, media sharing technology that's about to explode. And they had all these subgroups who are optimising compression differently because they've only got so much space on a CD. So how can they pack a really fully immersive experience onto a CD-ROM? Brandenburg becomes part of the Layer 3 team. They're working on a mode of compression in MPEG audio, which they describe as you know, the most complex one that we're working on in audio, we're trying to get the best quality at the lowest bit rates, so the lowest amount of space. And it goes back to that epiphany they've had earlier that, you know, they're trying to eliminate things that the human ear doesn't hear so that they can save space and compress further. And the MP3 is designed to fool the ear by eliminating, you know, all those least essential bits and... Um, to do this well, they're trying to appreciate how does the human ear actually perceive sound. So it's 1988, Carl's going, I think that's nearly perfect what we've done. I'm really proud of it. And then he hears about this song and he hears it himself. And it's the a cappella version of Tom's Diner. And the way it's recorded, with they describe it as Suzanne Vega in the middle and a little bit of ambience and no other instruments. It's a worst case scenario for our compression as we've mm. designed it. Everything else that we'd put it through sounded okay and her voice was destroyed. So there's all these strong distortions and they spend months refining it. Carl Hines thinks that he listened to the song over a thousand times mm. and they're doing it until it comes through clearly. Now in 2000, a significant time has passed, MP3 has become a standard, they've been successful. Suzanne Vega's dropping her daughter off at preschool and this father, who she doesn't know that well, comes up and says, congratulations on being the uh, mother of MP3. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, there's an article this week in a magazine called Business 2.0, which just makes me laugh so much. It's an excellent name for a mag. And uh, they said that they used one of your songs to help refine MP3. And the article was called Ich bin ein Paradigm Shifter. (laughs) (laughs) The MP3 format is a product of Suzanne Baker's voice and this man's ears. So uh, in 2007, it's, it's really beautiful. They invite Suzanne Vega to meet the project team of engineers in Germany at the Fraunhofer Institute in Erlangen. Um, sounds fantastic. And they have a press conference and they play the original version of Tom's Diner and then they play a few versions of what it sounded like in the original MPEG compression and how broken it was. And then they say, this is where we got it to, and in a very German way. Now it recreates it perfectly, exactly the same. And Suzanne Vega's like... I don't know, like to me it sounds a little bit more high-end and you know, <laughs> which is just such a perfect musician's response yes. to mm. a compression. Uh, the MP3 format was officially released in 1991, uh, almost 32 years ago, December 1991. Uh, so I thought, what a beautiful little story. Apparently Philip Glass used Tom Diner in his sound checks, uh. Tom Steiner. So, uh, you know, it's they're not the only team who sort of went and had this incredible connection to this song and realised how, you know, unique it was, but also just how it was almost like this purest form of something that you might want to create. So I hope that uh, you enjoyed that little fairy tale. It's so weird that the Seinfeld restaurant, I I feel like the Seinfeld sitcom came up and swooped 
up mm. all the glory <laughs> yeah. and association. Well, it does make you wonder, you know how in, in Seinfeld they talk about that location that's just destined to fail and it has a series of yeah. restaurants and it just dies. This is like the opposite of that. This yes. is like a little cultural touch point that seems to, you know, energise and, and add to the creativity around it somehow despite seeming... So regular and, yeah. And how interesting that it's Tom's restaurant, but it's Tom's diner in the song, and then in Seinfeld Mm. it's something else entirely. Exactly. I never made the connection, and uh, I just thought, oh, this is making my brain ping in all these happy ways. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Got to subscribe to Business Week 2.0 or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Vanessa Tolka, thank you very much for the uh, story about nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Triple... Chris Walmsley is the best-selling author of City of Crows, The Low Road, Bereft, Cairo and last year's The Diplomat. Along the way, winning the Ned Kelly Award for Fiction, the Australian Book Industry Award for Literary Fiction, the Indie Award for Best Fiction and being shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award and the Age Book of the Year. His latest novel is Ordinary Gods and Monsters, a rye coming-of-age thriller set in the suburbs. And to tell us about it, the Triple R Literary Luminary joins us now. Chris, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back here. Now, we've, we've been to, what, 17th century... France and inner city Melbourne, but we're we're venturing further into Zone Two. Well, yeah, that's, that's right. You'll need a different kind of travel card for this sort of adventure. Um, so yeah, the ordinary gods and monsters are set in a in a sort of a fictional suburb called Prospect, which is sort of I guess loosely based on somewhere like Box Hill or Camberwell or any sort of middle mid level sort of suburb of an Australian city. It's got a footy oval, it's got a cutting and abandoned old railway line, uh, it's got suburban backyards and it's got some young people trying to solve a mystery. Yeah, and it, it captures that weird, very important summer in an individual's life often. Yeah, so it's sort of, I guess the story is, of, you know, it's narrated by a, a 17-year-old young man called Nick Wheatley and he's finished high school and he's not quite sure what to do with the rest of his life. It's that sort of liminal space I guess between um child you know you're not quite a child you're not quite an adult you can there's certain things you can do you can't vote for example um people are always asking you what are you going to do for a career (laughs) where are you going to go to university or what kind of trade are you going to do so I yeah weirdly it wasn't until after I wrote it that I realized that um the suburbs kind of thematically fit in with the idea of adolescence as well because it's sort of between the city and mm. the country. It's like a sort of a an in-between space. And, and you know, I sort of spent a long... I, I did grow up in the suburbs like a lot of us and moved to the city, I mean, when I was about 15. But And I've spent a long time sort of maligning the suburbs but like perhaps like a sort of a um a salmon wanting to go home i got a sort of a fondness for it somehow this sort of idea of space and um maybe growing up there i mean yeah no definitely i was just saying yeah it it transported me and there was definitely like a sense of like real longing there was like this ache in it of like yeah i think it's the heat and it's such a rich space as well of a character yeah being on that cusp of like Nothing happening, but the potential of you know everything happening in the eighties as well, and kind of in the, that time frame. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I mean, you know, the character is sort of pretty much my age when I was in nineteen eighty five. Say, for example, not that he's based in any way on me <laughs> at all. Um, so yeah, and I and I, I feel like those kind of, that adolescent period is very much a sweet spot for my a lot of my work. A lot of my short fiction is sort of engaged in that kind of stuff, and I. I I think that, yeah, there's, a, there's sort of an attraction of um, 
I mean, I wrote a little thing for you know the Guardian about the you know the the equivalence of adolescence with the uncanny in the sense that you know as a when you're sixteen, seventeen, you sort of you sort of see the adult world and you kind of begin to understand things about the adult world, but you don't really understand it. It's like sort of you've got a car that you don't quite know how to drive on the freeway yet, yep. um, even though you sort of almost expect it or you want to do it, but it's kind of scary. So there's that sort of sense of learning things about the adult world that um, are not always pretty, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, and certainly for Nick and his sort of partner in crime, Marion, who's got a bit of a crush on, they sort of find this, they sort of, you know, delve into this mystery of the, the death of Marion's father and sort of wind up with a bunch of kind of speed-dealing bikies out in the suburbs. Well, you, you do write that, well, Nick says that I was only 17 years old, what did I know of anything? Mm. So how do you latch into being observant and articulate mm. and but not becoming yourself? Uh, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Like, it's very. Um, I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, a lot of my fiction has dealt with the sweet spot again. Is sort of a degree of ambiguity. Like, you know, people who are um, who are half knowing but not quite knowing, and that I, I guess I like to give the sense that the reader can read between the lines and see things that the characters themselves are unaware of, which is why I often have people who are stoned um, (laughs) because that's a kind of exactly, you know, people who are sort of not quite sure what's going on and the reader can see maybe what's going on. Um, So there's a sort of a degree of um, innocence and knowing which is uh, sort of just very hard to capture and and, and a lot of that is um, just in the voice, the voice of a character. And I think, you know, as I write more and more books and read more and more books, um, I I feel like voice is the key thing that will take you through a story. You know what I mean? If you feel, you know how you open a book and within the first couple of pages, hopefully even within the first Mm -hmm. paragraph, you feel like you're in good hands. You feel like you're in an authoritative voice and it's like, oh, yeah, I can spend some time with this person, you know, who's narrating this story because they're, you know, it's a lot about... um, Charm, I think, and mm. enchantment, you know, you want to kind of like bring people along with you. And that's not necessarily charm in a sense of um, someone who's charming and charismatic or whatever in a, in a positive way. Someone who's is kind of fun to be around yeah. in a sense. Uh, at its core is a crime and a m- mystery, which we'll get to, but just lingering on the sense of mm. place and time. Uh, for instance, you've got the narrator who says, if I ever encountered this dad... Uh, in the hall at Marion's place when I was going to the toilet, for example, or to the kitchen for a glass of cordial, it was extremely disorienting, more like encountering a puzzled ghost than a real living human. Yeah. Uh, that idea, the friend's dads. Yes. <laughs> well, friend's family. It's that kind of thing of, um, you know, and I, can't, I actually don't remember if it's in this book or I put it in another book, you know, that kind of idea that other people's families do things in a tiny way different to your own. Mm. They're, they're, the, the kind of food that the mother usually certainly in the 80s kind of makes is slightly different to the kind of stuff or the after school snacks are kind mm. of like they're always better at your friend's <laughs> yeah. place right? they're, yeah. they're allowed unlimited milo for example yeah. it's always more got, plentiful and that yeah. cuts to your like core inability to relate to them fully yeah, yeah. or their dishwashing deter you know yeah. their laundry detergents is a slightly different smell and all that kind of stuff but there's also that thing that when you're a kid you have um certainly in the suburban aspect i suppose perhaps it might be different if you grow up in the city but like that sense of um access to other people's 
houses. Mm. You know that kind of thing. You just walk into someone's house when you're like 13, <laughs> your neighbor's house, and just it's go like and come in the back door, walk <laughs> yeah, down the like, driveway. Yeah, you know where the key is. You come in the back door. You're like, help yourself to a glass of milk. Oh, g'day, Mrs. Blah blah blah. Um, it's like, was I nudge? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you got this sort of weird access as a kid because you're sort of almost invisible in a sense. Not threatening. Yeah, non-threatening, that's right. Whereas now if I kind of just went around to someone's you know, <laughs> the door, I'd be like, yeah, what the hell are you doing here? Um, so, yeah, and other people's parents are always slightly scary and or mysterious and or kind of alluring potentially as well in mm. that sense of like, ooh, you know. You, you see thing, you see sort of an intimate side of people that um, – perhaps is closed to you in other aspects of your life. And, of course, things get observed in the suburbs that make it easy to eavesdrop and spy and encounter, which helps, I'd imagine, uh, plotting a a Yeah, well, that's true. Like, you know, I guess coming back to that idea of being slightly invisible as a kid or as a sort of an adolescent, certainly, like people don't quite take you seriously enough that they sort of may still speak freely around you in a way that, you know, they certainly wouldn't if you were older, I guess. So, Mm. um, you know, it enables, you know, in the case of, I guess, ordinary gods and monsters, Nick to kind of overhear certain things and he's sort of, he's given certain clues as to who may be responsible for the death of... Uh, his best friend Marion's father and sort of sets him off on this adventure to find out who did it. Is there a Chris Wormsley dossier of references? <laughs> Look, there is in yeah. the book. No, in, well, in, the, in, your, in the, your house. In my, <laughs> that I, we will visit in unannounced. Uh, yeah, right, you can just, I'll, get, I'll tell you where the key is. Uh, <laughs> kind of rock. I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Well, like, you know, volivants and red icy poles and balding tennis balls and oh, they're I all see. so yeah, evocative. Yeah, look, I, th- I feel like, the, you know, certainly people who kind of knew me when I was, or know my kind of family background will find little Easter eggs in here that are like, oh, okay, I think that rings a little bit true about some members of my family and and certain things and stuff. But certainly um, a lot of it is – this was a book that was – I wrote sort of weirdly very quickly. Uh, Like it it is – although the sort of the central mystery in the plot is totally fictional, a lot of the background is sort of based – on my own memories of growing up in the suburbs as a, you know, in the, in the 80s and stuff. So the sort of the texture of it, I guess, is all there. And um, it was a weird experience, you know, when you write, when you're creating something, and I don't know if it's like this for other people, but when it's going well, it's like you're remembering stuff rather than just creating it. It's kind of like it's mm-hmm. all you got to do is sit down and find the space and suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, and then this happened and, oh, yeah, we ate some Monte Carlos and, oh, that's, <laughs> it happens to form a really important part of the plot and it all just is there waiting to be retrieved and that's not something that happens to me terribly often, mm. unfortunately. Is there a fusion of the two at all? Like the remembering of like some of the details actually based on your own personal yes. experience? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so in the instance of this book, there is definitely a kind of a sense of, and, you know, the same was a little bit true of The Diplomat as well, a sense of kind of my own kind of history forming the texture of it, even though the, the kind of the plot points are kind of fictionalised. You know, um, mm. my life hasn't been that interesting that I can write a kind of a memoir and, and have people, you know, expect people to read it. So, yeah, I get, you know, but I think all writing is a bit like that, mm. you know, even if you are setting something in 17th century France or something, like there's an element of, like, remembering and wondering what it would be like or or, or, or transforming an experience that you've had uh, into something that's narratively interesting for other 
people to read. Mm. Uh, I mean, you were here only last year with your the diplomat, and yep. uh, you're on the verge of being. Could we describe you as prolific? Well, I think I might have to put a break on it. <laughs> yeah, we're on the verge of being prolific, but this book felt like a slight kind of lucky accident in the sense, like you know, both the diplomat and. Um, and Ordinary Gods and Monsters I wrote in lockdown kind of on the couch um, with my laptop on my knees. So it was sort of not optimum circumstances, but weirdly it it sort of worked for me in that instance. I don't know why. And what about acclaim from contemporaries? Uh, Mm. Is it a pinch me or is it like, oh, well, you're... Well, yeah, it's it's look, it's always good to you know. There's a few kind of luminaries on the cover, you know, Steve Toltz and Aravind Adiga and stuff, and they're people I don't really know necessarily, although I have crossed paths with Steve. And it's um, it's always gratifying because people, they're your first readers often of a book outside the sort of publishing circle or your family, and to get a good response from people like that's obviously you know, really gratifying. Yeah. And is it 3KY? What's the radio station that cracks a mention? Oh, probably 3XY. 3XY. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe triple on the next one. We'll make a return. Okay. Well, Ordinary Gods and Monsters is the new novel by Chris Wormsley. It's a page turner. It's out via Picador. Anything else you want to add? Uh, available in all good bookstores and probably some pretty bad ones as well. And um, subscribe to Triple R. Beautiful. Thanks very much, Chris. No worries. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. 